You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster Talk is supported by listeners like you. Find out how you can contribute via Patreon or with reviews at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Your contributions, large or small, make a huge difference. Thanks. As far as I'm concerned, the best way to hear Art Bell was while driving late at night, far away from the lights of big cities. In the darkness, under the starry canopy of rural skies, the musical intro to his show would come cutting into the interior of whatever piece of junk I was currently making payments on. Sometimes, I would be struggling to stay awake, trying to find anything entertaining or engaging to listen to that would keep me alert so I could continue towards my destination. And out there in the darkness, between the static, the sports shows, the repeat political shows from earlier in the day, the Spanish-language mariachi stations, there would come the tune that heralded a trip into the unknown. From the high desert and the great American Southwest, this is Coast to Coast AM, heard across 24 time zones. That would be the world as we know it. I'm Art Bell, and it's great to be here. Lots of news for you tonight. In the it's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. This episode is a special look back at the career of Art Bell. On April 13th of 2018, radio host Art Bell died. From that day until now, I knew I wanted to talk about his impact on myself and on the world of the weird. 
But this is a little scary for me because what's floating around in my head is more nuanced than I can probably do justice to. This is a common issue for any writers. The concern that whatever you're going to write won't live up to the visions of bouncing around in your head. Still, I'm going to try. I'll also add that this is not a biography of art or a comprehensive look back at his show. I'm just going to talk about some of the ways he and his show impacted American culture and me. A couple of years ago, back in episode 109, we talked with James Randi about his work on radio and late-night New York radio show hosts John Nebel, Long John Nebel. Nebel pioneered a quirky UFO and Fortean-themed late-night radio show. His nightly discourse with early ufologists and cryptozoologists and self-described psychics and other characters really sort of set a pattern that Art Bell would take on for Coast to Coast AM. However, it doesn't seem to me that Bell deliberately emulated Nebel. Bell had a long radio career, and from what I've been able to read, it sounds like his early foray into late-night talk radio slowly evolved into the sort of fringe topics the show became famous for. So the parallels between Bell and Nebel might be more of a convergent evolution and not direct emulation. I wanted to mention that because as his show evolved and continues today, even though it owes something to Nebel thematically, it was a very different show. Coast to Coast would end up becoming more complex as Bell set up some recurring themes. His Sunday night show was Dreamland, and he memorably had a variety of dial-in numbers depending on where callers were calling from. To talk with Art Bell, call the Wildcard line at area code 775-727-1295. The first-time caller line is area code 775-727-1222. To talk with Art Bell from east of the Rockies, call toll-free at 800-825-5033. From west of the Rockies, call 800-618-8255. International callers may reach Art by calling your in-country Sprint Access number, pressing option 5, and dialing toll-free 800-893-0903. From coast to coast and worldwide on the Internet, this is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. That deep bass voice belonged to veteran radio broadcaster Ross Mitchell. I must confess that when I first heard those number listings, the voice was so deep that I thought perhaps Bell had slowed down his own voice to make the clips. But who would do something as amateurish as that? (laughs) How pathetic. Monster dog. Another veteran radio broadcaster that may have influenced Bell was Gene Shepard. Like Long John Nebel... Gene took his audience through late-night moments of comedy and human interest. You may best know him from A Christmas Story, which is based on his writings in which he narrates. But back in the 1950s, Shepard coined a phrase that captured his audience in a two-word label, which would also serve to well-describe Bell's listeners. Night people. We listeners of Coast to Coast weren't the mundane day listeners of AM Drivel. We were different. We were special. We were the ones who knew that there must be more going on in the world than what the powers that be would admit to. That there were secrets out there which had to be told. And if you wanted to get your weird idea out to the biggest, most open-minded audience, Coast to Coast AM was where the night people came to drink from the fountain of Art Bell's desert oasis. Broadcasting from his fenced-in compound in Pahrump, Nevada, Bell seemed to be living the dream of the plucky independent outsider. He had solar panels a shortwave license, power generators, a big chain-link fence, and he was about an hour away from the bright lights of Las Vegas. He had pioneered extending one's radio show out into a wider community. He had a newsletter. He had a digital message board. 
He used email. He posted web camera footage. He was one of the first broadcasters to allow his back catalog access through digital subscription and have millions of listeners through a syndicated network of stations. All of that sounds routine now, but Art Bell was blazing a trail to the broadcast world of today. Bell had been tweaking his formula for a while, but I believe it was in 1995 when I first got a chance to listen to Coast to Coast AM. My friend Curtis always seemed very plugged into French topics, and he told me that I simply must figure out how to listen to Coast to Coast. He could get it up at his home in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, but at the time, we didn't have a local station near Cartersville, Georgia that was carrying it. At the time, I was living in a house that had been built in the 1950s and belonged to my great-aunt and uncle. They were in a nursing home, and I was taking care of the place. So after experimenting, I discovered that if I hung my portable radio from a nail high up on the kitchen wall and extended the antenna as far as it would go, and if I carefully fiddled with the dial, and if I was lucky, I could pick up Coast to Coast AM. So there, in the kitchen of my great-aunt and uncle's creepy old house, struggling against whispers and gibberish from signal bleed and perpetual static, I became a regular listener to Art Bell. I was one of the night people. Art's audience included a disparate cross-section of the nation, and the world, for that matter. He took calls himself, and he had no screener, so listeners got a very strong feeling that Art was a one-man show. It created a feeling of community, one that was populated by long-haul truckers and law enforcement personnel and retirees, shift workers, on-call support people, students, and so many more. I know it was always a fun thing to listen to when I was doing late-night server work, the kind of stuff that had to be done at night when no customers were on the systems. Oh, the things I heard. The things we all heard. We, the night people. Coast to Coast drew from a spectrum of interests, some from the fringe, some from the esoteric, some from the political. He had an eclectic taste in music, which included ABBA and the German band Cusco, which relied heavily on the use of South American flutes, the ethereal Lorena McKinnett, the Mooney Blues, and many others. I'll put a link in the show notes to Art Bell's bumper music list on Spotify. The most recognizable tune Bell used is likely the song Chase from the Midnight Express soundtrack. It's amazing to me that my brain is still torn between thinking of Art Bell and then the pro wrestling team, the Midnight Express, when I hear this song. Both have left an indelible mark on me, and I've yet to see the film from which the song is derived. I'll probably have to fix that soon. But it's not the bumper music that made Bell famous. It was his friendly, open-minded radio manner and the ability to talk about anything, no matter how absurd, as though it just might be true. In the wake of Bell's death, I saw a lot of comments about how Bell had spread nonsense and was not critical of his guests. If you were a long-time listener, you'd know this isn't entirely true. There were definitely times when he let guests get by with absolutely untrue assertions, but he also would call out people for their nonsense on occasion. Yet, a lot of nonsense came through, and Bell would not let something like fact-checking get between his audience and a good story. I suspect he saw himself primarily as an entertainer, but maybe we'll talk more about that. For now, let's get into the weirdness that made Bell a household name. If your household happened to include anyone that worked late shift and owned AM radio, I suppose. Art loved to talk about spooky things. His shows particularly remembered for popularizing, and some even claim naming, one of the more frequently reported ghostly manifestations, Shadow People. Shadow People's one of the many topics I still want to cover on Monster Talk. I've seen a shadow person, and what I experience fits quite neatly into the sort of hypnagogue and hypnopompic experiences that can easily explain the phenomena. 
But even if you accept that they're a construct of your own mind, it's extremely disconcerting to see a shadowy humanoid figure by your bed at night. It's the sort of phenomena that makes you sleep with the light on, which is really no good way to get sleep. But then, neither is waking up to find the mysterious Mr. Spooky McDarkness lurking in the dread spaces of your bedroom. My own research into the phrase shadow people shows it was being used at least as early as 1985 in paranormal literature, but it was uncommon before Bell's coverage made the moniker pervasive. I do find it curious that Bell didn't seem to be aware of the other wildly popular spooky entity that emerged in the 1990s, namely the Black Eyed Kids. Although it would have fit in with the show's format perfectly, Bell said in a 2015 interview he'd only recently heard of the BEK phenomena. But don't worry, he got to plenty of other peculiar items. Bell was friends with George Knapp, a local Las Vegas news host who had a deep interest in UFOs and paranormal phenomena. Knapp was influential in getting two big topics into mainstream coverage. His interviews with Bob Lazar pushed an extraterrestrial hypothesis in the uh, the government has UFOs type narrative into the Area 51 secret test base stories. Knapp would also go on to be deeply involved with the Utah Cattle Ranch, known as the Skinwalker Ranch, which allegedly was the home of extra-dimensional entities toying with cattle and scientists and ranchers for no apparent reason. Knapp himself and Lazar would be repeat guests about these topics. Knapp would eventually become a repeat guest host on our show, but let's get on to Lazar first. Bob Lazar's story is an odd one, but has become a template for so much pop culture around the test ground known as Area 51. Let's hear a little sample. Bob Lazar's story of working on alien craft in Area 51 fit nicely with a lot of conspiracy theories. 
But in the years that follow, it turned out Lazar's educational background didn't match up with his claims, and the most interesting aspects of his story were completely unverifiable. Some have interpreted this to mean that Lazar was a fraud, and others, like Knapp, say that Lazar may have exaggerated his educational credentials to secure an amazing job. For a variety of reasons, I'm inclined to be very skeptical of Bob Lazar's story, and of George Knapp for that matter. Knapp would go on to become a regular part-time host on the Sunday evening show Dreamland, and I personally think they missed a great opportunity to rebrand his guest spots as Nap Time. But they never consult with me on this stuff. Art Bell's shows would range over so many different topics that it's unlikely any single listener would like every one of them. Yet the range and variety also meant that if you didn't like tonight's topic, something wildly different likely lurked around the corner with tomorrow's show. Add to that the eclectic interactions with listeners, Bell's affable enjoyment and sort of golly gee whiz take on whatever his guests were talking about. And you might not get schooled in critical thinking, but you're certainly getting an education in radio entertainment. Bell didn't limit his guests to fringe topics either. He had on a variety of media guests, including authors and actors. He had on George Carlin. He had on physicist Michio Kaku. Scientific paranormal investigator Joe Nickel and skeptic magazine publisher Michael Shermer were also on the show. The weird stories of a bottomless hole into the center of the earth, the famous Mel's Hole calls, were a source of speculation and amusement. There was a weird frantic call from a man who claimed to work at Area 51. It was on the run from people out to catch him. And his claims that the government was able to stop upcoming disasters, but would do nothing, only to have that call suddenly interrupted and the radio to go dead. There were alleged time travelers like John Titor. There were discussions of French technology like zero-point energy, ancient aliens, Bigfoot screams, mysterious disappearance, really you name it. I'm pretty sure Coast to Coast was the first place I ever heard of the Chupacabra. There were psychics and mediums and alternative medicine and the sort of thing that raises my skeptical hackles because some of these claims I don't see as harmless. But none of those caused Art as much controversy as his remote viewing guests during the appearance of the Hellbop Comet. Let's take a little listen to some of that audio. At the time this was recorded, the Hellbop Comet was racing into our solar system, and it was so bright that it could be viewed even during the daytime. It was the first comet I remember seeing myself, and it was not surprising, as frequently occurred during historic events when comets showed up. Something in the sky, even in 1997, could be seen as an omen of great import. Remote viewers, what Art Bell guests like Major Ed Dames would describe as a scientific method for seeing things far away using psychic techniques, they were all the rage. It had become wildly popular as a topic on the show, and Bell was interviewing Courtney Brown, a political science professor at Emory University, who had become a remote viewing instructor. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose, it kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at Chinwag Pod and Wagon. 
We've got a podcast recommendation I think will be really fun and or useful for Monster Talk listeners. I Know Dino, the big dinosaur podcast. Studying dinosaurs can teach us about the prehistoric world, but also the world of today. For example, migration patterns of dinosaur lineages can tell us about the Earth's changing continents. Climate models of dinosaur ecosystems help us understand global warming. Studying dinosaur diets can help show the link between plant and animal evolution. Talk about paleo. Hmm. In many dinosaur injuries, <laughs> paleopathologies are the first known occurrences of diseases. A new episode of I Know Dino comes out every week with new dinosaur discoveries you won't hear about anywhere else. You can find I Know Dino on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. They are discussing something that has been reported during a remote viewing investigation of the comet. Well, I guess I, I'm, whatever you're going to say, I'm not going to consider it that incredible. You don't suddenly see objects four times the size of Earth, yeah. or, oh. or even twice the size of Earth, appearing like that. I should, I, should also, uh, uh, I should also add, Art, that when we heard about this object, we have friends. Uh, I'm a PhD. My webmaster's got a PhD in physics. We, we, we're, we're all of an academic, uh, academic orientation. And uh, uh, we called up, one of our people called up uh, a professor of astronomy at one of the, uh, one of the nation's leading, absolute top, top ten leading universities, or a close personal friend, uh, a professor uh, in astronomy, and asked uh, what's going on. And this yeah. professor of astronomy corroborated everything that uh, Mr. Schrammick just said. All right, well, then that, that's another source, because uh, he contacted Richard Hoagland, a guest I've had frequently, mm -hmm. and Richard Hoagland apparently has been getting calls on exactly the same thing. Yeah, so, this, obviously, there's something to this. This object is four times, approximately four times, the size of the planet Earth, and it's headed our way. I'll interrupt here quickly to say Richard Hoagland was a frequent guest on Bell's show who believed that the face on Mars represented a real Martian civilization in the Cydonia region. It doesn't. He also believed that there are monuments on the moon, and there aren't, and a variety of unusual space objects that more skeptical people might attribute to pareidolia when interpreting noise and image details. Having Hoagland support one's fringe findings is about as comforting as having Colonel Sanders endorse your fried food diet theories. So somebody here is being sent a message. Us. The interpretation of this. this, this is us? Collectively us? The interpretation of this session so far is that the message is being sent to us. We're listening but not understanding. Professor, is this message coming from this object? Yes, and it's also being coordinated by this larger galactic council. I'm now re I've, I reviewed all three sessions, so I'm pulling things from all three sessions. All right. That's very clear. There is a large object out there. It apparently is both, it has tunnels in it. It is both technological, artificial, and natural in the sense that it has rock as well as uh, is metal in it. It's humongous. It's absolutely large, and it is apparently moving in an artificial in artificial means. It's not moving like a normal celestial body means. It's under control. It's a vehicle. It's moving, and it's four times the size of the planet Earth. This is a big ET thing. One thing you must say about the ETs is that when they decide to put on a show, oh boy, they know theater. They know theater. <laughs> this is better than anything on Broadway. Yeah, it works for me. This is better than ID4. Uh, I tell you, and uh, but the good news is that we're not being invaded, but I got, that'll come to us later. There was no companion object to the comet. 
Courtney Brown's remote viewing data was wrong. Brown provided Bell with further evidence in the form of photos showing the comet with a mysterious second object, which he said he got from an unnamed astronomer. Those photos turned out to be doctored. You can read more about this through a link in the show notes, but what happened next has been one of the most controversial outcomes related to Bell's shows. In California, a UFO cult called Heaven's Gate were being led by a messianic leader named Marshall Applewhite. Although he went by many other names through his teaching career, I'm using teaching in scare quotes, I could go into a lot deeper detail about what was going on in that cult, but I'm just going to talk here in terms of consequences. Applewhite told his followers there was a companion to the comet and that it was a spaceship that was coming to take them to the level above human, whatever that meant. Regardless of whatever it figuratively meant, he had his cult commit mass suicide to shed their bodies and reach the companionship, and they all died, including Applewhite. After their death, the question of whether Bell's show had any culpability came up. Did the promotion of this fake companion object contribute to their demise? I can certainly see why some people would come to that conclusion. Bell contended that his show was entertainment and he couldn't be responsible for how unhinged people took the information. And the Heaven's Gate cult mentioned on their site that it didn't matter if the companion object was real or not, implying that they knew it had been debunked before they took their suicidal actions. Some of the episodes related to the Hellbop companion object disappeared from Art Bell's archives, perhaps mysteriously, perhaps fortuitously. Regardless, Bell distanced himself from any responsibility concerning the actions of the cult. But Bell would continue to promote scaremongering topics on his show, probably none more famous than his parade of doomsayers around the topic of Y2K. This particular topic hit close to home for me because I was working as an IT administrator for a telco during the years ramping up to the year 2000. If you don't know about Y2K, it was a concern caused by the way computers handled dates as two digits when programs were being created in the 70s and 80s. As we approached the year 2000, some computers would think that the date rolled over to 1900 instead of 2000, and then all hell would break loose as the world's computer-run infrastructure collapsed as scheduled jobs failed to be triggered. The claims of doom went from short-term power outages to planes falling out of the sky to the collapse of Western civilization into a bartering wasteland. Sort of picture Thundar the Barbarian with a slightly less magical worldscape. Or maybe 28 days later with slightly dumber zombies. I hear people say frequently that Y2K was a bust, that nothing happened, so it was all a big waste of time. But I can tell you from my experience that the reason nothing happened in the companies I worked at was because thousands of people spent years diligently testing equipment and replacing and upgrading and ensuring that everything had been checked for compliance. And if it failed, we fixed it. It would be interesting to do some sort of historical audit to see how many of the tested systems actually had to be upgraded or replaced, and I don't know the answer to that. I do know that during the two years prior to 2000, it was suddenly useful to know COBOL again as people struggled to find ways to update their systems to pass testing. I'm inclined to think that the reason nothing happened is because IT administrators took the threat seriously and checked out their systems and fixed and patched things across the country to make sure we had no disaster. But meanwhile, Art Bell continued to have on guest after guest and asked them to prognosticate about what would happen when things fell apart over the New Year holiday. Here's famous psychonaut Terrence McKenna talking about Y2K out in his neck of the woods in Hawaii. If, yeah. if the power went out and stayed out for a month in Honolulu, what do you think would happen socially? Well, in any city, I think push would come to shove in a hurry because water pumps would not work, and so the city water supply would be only what was in the pipes, and uh, you can take the scenario from there. 
uh, I live on an island hundreds of miles from Honolulu, and thankfully so. I'm not a survivalist, at least not consciously, but I've certainly built a system that is redundant, off-grid, wireless, and capable of maintaining itself without any help from anybody else. Uh, I'm concerned about people uh, in cities, uh, even if Y2K does not bring the end of the world in very dense population centers like Tokyo and Manhattan, where the, simply the number of embedded chips is exponentially high, the possibility of some kind of chain reaction failure is consequently high as well. So I think people should give consideration to moving out of those kinds of areas, even if just temporarily. Mm-hmm. Ironically, McKenna would be diagnosed with a brain tumor in 1999 and would be dead by April of 2000. But at least he had electricity and water during his final days because the Y2K disaster never happened. Here's the part that bothered me. Bell's disaster gloom and woe stories scared the crap out of people. I had co-workers who were helping proof our systems against any disaster, who knew how things were going at our company, and who still said that on December 31st, 1999, they would be at home with their freeze-dried food, their bottled water, their generators, and their guns ready to defend their homes from looters. W.T.F. I really tried to assure them that this would be pointless. Everyone was doing the same kind of work we were doing to prepare, and things would be fine. And in the end, they ended up having to work that night anyway because the telco insisted that all the network equipment be monitored. So it was weak champagne in the server rooms for them. And I spent my Y2K watching Dick Clark with my fiance, sharing the worst case of the flu that I've ever had. We were both coughing so hard we bruised our lungs. And my wife, Kathleen, insisted that we take our photo, a tradition she's tried to keep up, as the new year rolled over. Ironically, the photo doesn't capture how horrible we felt. And my memory of the flu is greater than my memory of the fear of Y2K. And consequently, I've gotten a flu shot every year since that horrible night. But nothing happened. Y2K was a bust. But I think it was from hard work. And I will tell you that a lot of surplus generators were on sale in January of 2000. Bell also worked with Whitley Strieber on a book called The Coming Global Superstorm, which inspired the film The Day After Tomorrow. When global warming leads to a sudden global freezing and North America becomes a giant ice sheet in a matter of hours. Admittedly, I enjoyed that film, but in the same way that I enjoyed Godzilla or any other kind of disaster film with epic effects. Bell kept going on about some weird event that he was sensing and that he called the quickening. I never heard him exactly explain what that was, but it was like he was sensing patterns in the chaos of the world and he thought it meant something. It apparently had nothing to do with him secretly being a Highlander-style immortal as we are now shown by his passing. Art Bell started some traditions that I really enjoyed. His New Year's Eve show was all about predictions, and you know how those go. His Halloween shows became Ghost to Ghost AM, and he had on listeners telling their scary, haunting experiences all night long. I have all these recorded and still occasionally pull them out of my phone and listen to them. I love a ghost story, and turning out the lights and listening to these callers is still a genuinely creepy experience, despite my intense skepticism about ghosts being real. Sometimes it's fun to stop worrying about whether things are literally real and just enjoy a story. I do need to talk about something that bugged me back during Art's run on that show and still bothers me when I listen to the current host, George Norrie. The advertisers on AM radio are terrible. 
The best Bell had was the C. Crane Company, which sold wind-up electric radios, which would be useful when the grid fails or whatever other disaster hit. But he also had an endless parade of invest in gold for when things fall apart and try this alternative medicine because it's all natural sort of ads. Ads for rubes, in my opinion. Ads that promise the impossible. Ads that promote fake cures through the barely legal wording of the herbal remedy market. I hated that then and I still do. It's not enough that you want to talk about wild theories, but to build your show on an economy of lies seems dangerous, harmful. And if you know this stuff's not real, then you have an ethical duty to not advertise it. Unless perhaps you've carefully cultivated a world outlook where anything's possible so long as you don't fact check. (sighs) I hate to end on that sour note. Most of the Art Bell shows I listen to are fun. Occasionally I learn something new and real. And I often use the topics to spur my own investigations since Critical Inquiry wasn't part of his show. And I'm leaving out a lot of stuff here because I can't do a full biography of Bell or even a really thorough retrospective. He was a complicated person. He, he worked for years in the industry. And I'm ignoring s- several controversial aspects of his family life, the drama around his coming and going from the broadcast community, and other factors which are interesting but fall outside the scope of what I want to do in this episode. Bell influenced video games and movies and TV shows. The X-Files owes him for a lot of inspiration. And at its peak, Bell had an estimated audience of 15 million nightly listeners. Those night people. And they're still out there. And if you listen, you can still hear art. Many of his shows are on YouTube in their entirety. And I've put some links in the show notes at monstertalk.org. So how do you summarize someone like Art Bell? His shadows all over the field of the paranormal, yet he also gave voice to some science and critical thinking. It's a mixed bag. There's a kind of person who judges others on the basis of the harm they do. And there are others who ignore the harm and think of the good they do. And I try to be cognizant that everyone is complicated. Art grew his audience and didn't focus on critical thinking or rationality. He focused on trying to entertain. And in that sense, he was very successful. His real life was complicated and his legacy will live on for years in the continuation of the shows he started and with the perpetuation of legends that will never die largely due to the enormous megaphone that he used to spread those stories. For those of us who love stories but want to know the truth, Art Bell's legacy is complicated, bittersweet. But the world would definitely have been a less interesting place without him. Monster Dog. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. This has been a special look at Art Bell, creator of Coast to Coast AM. I'm Blake Smith, and Monster Talk's an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views expressed here are my own and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as a donation button. A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. Thank you so much for listening. 
Did you know that you can now subscribe to Skeptic Magazine digitally? Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com slash magazine slash app to find out more and download more of your favorite Skeptic content. Online, you're on the air. Hello. Hello, Art. Yes. Hi. Um, I... I, I... I don't have a whole lot of uh, time. Um, well, look, let's begin yeah. by finding out whether you're using this line properly or not. Uh, Area 51. Yeah, um, that's right. Were you an employee or are you now? Uh, I, a former employee. Former um, employee. I, I, I was let go on a medical discharge about a week ago. And, and <laughs> I, I've kind of been running across the country. Um, oh, man, I don't know where to start. There are... Uh, they're, they're gonna, um, they'll triangulate on this position really, really soon. So um, you can't spend a lot of time on the phone, so give us something quick. Okay, um, um, okay, what, what we're thinking of as, as aliens are, they're, uh, they're, they're extra dimensional beings that an earlier precursor of the, um, space program made contact with. Uh, they they are not what they claim to be. Uh, they have infiltrated a lot of uh, uh, a lot of aspects of, of of the military establishment, particularly the Area 51. Uh, the, the disasters that are coming, they the, the military. I'm sorry, the, the government knows about them, and there's a lot of safe areas in this world that they could begin moving the population to now aren't but they're not doing they're not doing anything they are not they want the major population centers wiped out so that the the few that are left will be more easily controllable discharge transmit capability on this end here in Nevada the transmitter went belly up suddenly for some unknown reason I've never seen it do this in all the years all the years that we've been on the air I have never seen the transmitter in this way just simply fail a massively fail like a massive heart attack or some kind and so we have gone to a backup system to get the signal to you right now and I presume it is getting to you right now